Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Everything was bleak. It had been the most difficult of springs, and summer, which was at hand, did not promise to be much better. And it could well turn out even worse. Such was the reality that Winston Churchill, Great Britain, and the democracies of the West faced in June 1940. In the face of Adolf Hitler's blitzkrieg, Europe was falling under German domination. Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and now, breathtakingly, France itself was in the grip of Nazi power. The German war machine strikes again. Without warning, by air, by land, and water, the most terrible of all blitzkriegs so far, a wanton act of aggression that has shocked the entire civilized world, and a new war terror for the Western Front. Britain stood alone. America remained isolationist, unwilling to project force across the seas to stop the spread of imperialist and racist German designs. And the resistance of the British had no more vivid or eloquent embodiment than that of Winston Churchill, who had become Prime Minister on Friday the 10th of May, 1940. Winston Churchill, who has held more political offices than any living man, is now Prime Minister. Mr. Churchill now takes over the supreme direction of Britain's war effort at a time when the war is rapidly moving toward Britain's doorstep. On accepting the post, Churchill recalled, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and all my life had been but preparation for this hour and for this trial. I was sure I should not fail. Few others shared this certainty. I suppose Churchill is the best man England has, Franklin Roosevelt remarked, even if he is drunk half the time. In the end, Churchill would be proven right. Man and moment had met. In words and actions in that terrible year of 1940, the 65-year-old politician and writer first elected to Parliament when Victoria was on the throne would be implacable, courageous, steadfast. Much will depend on this, and every man and woman will have the chance to show the finest qualities of their race and to render the highest service to their cause. For all of us, whatever our sphere or station, it will be a help to think of the famous line, he nothing common did or mean upon that memorable scene. I'm John Meacham. Welcome to Season 2 of It Was Said, Episode 1, The Finest Hour.
On Tuesday, June 18, 1940, Churchill would give one of the great speeches in the English language. Detailed, realistic, and defiant, the Prime Minister offered a master class in political, psychological, and military leadership. In its detail, in its cadences, in its realism, the speech, known to us as the finest hour oration, sheds light on the darkest of moments and on how a very human, deeply flawed, but resolute man surveyed the scene, identified the course of action he wanted to pursue, and convinced a mass audience to follow him no matter the danger. What General Vagon has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. That was the heart of the matter. There could be no negotiation, no compromise, no accommodation with evil. There had been a movement for peace talks with the Axis powers in May, but Churchill had deftly insisted that an overture either to Benito Mussolini or to Hitler himself would be fatal to public morale. In this, interestingly, Churchill had received invaluable assistance from his predecessor, Neville Chamberlain, who remained in the unity government. Churchill had said to his colleagues, if this Long Island story of ours is to end at last, let it end only when each of us is choking in his own blood upon the ground. There is a temptation to find some sort of settlement with the Nazis. This idea that Britain is going to be standing alone is something that is terrifying to many people. And there is also the possibility that if Britain stands back, and steps out of it that the Nazis and the communists may ultimately tear each other apart. But Churchill, of course, knows that this is not something that can stand. This is the historian Catherine Grace Katz, author of Daughters of Yalta, The Churchills, Roosevelts, and Harrimans, A Story of Love and War. Norway has fallen, Poland has fallen, Denmark, Belgium, the Netherlands, and now France has been invaded by the Nazis. The French leadership has fled from Paris. And on June 18th, they are a mere four days away from officially surrendering to the Nazis. And this is the first time in 125 years that Britain has faced the formidable prospect of a potential enemy invasion across the English Channel. And so here Churchill is trying to rally the spirits of the British people. Britain must stand up to the Nazi menace, even if it means standing alone. Through several ensuing weeks of military reversals, Churchill expressed the same defiant spirit to the nation at large. The defeat of the French was devastating. And, as Churchill recalled, after the collapse of France, the question which arose in the minds of all our friends and foes was, would Britain surrender too? So far as public statements count in the teeth of events, I had in the name of His Majesty's government repeatedly declared our resolve to fight on alone. In the less than five weeks since Churchill has become prime minister, he has delivered already the greatest concentration of iconic speeches, perhaps of any leader in history. 
In May, he delivers his blood, toil, tears, and sweat speech upon becoming prime minister. And then just less than two weeks prior on June 4th, after the evacuation of Dunkirk is complete, he declares that Britain will never surrender. And these incredibly motivational words have captured the British public's imagination. After the evacuation of the British expeditionary force at Dunkirk in early June, Churchill had minced no words, saying, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, we shall prove ourselves once again able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. If necessary for years, if necessary alone. As Churchill recalled, this was not inserted without design, and the French ambassador in London had been instructed the next day to inquire what I actually meant. He was told exactly what was said. In that same speech, Churchill had made himself clear. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. He is trying to capture the hearts and the imaginations of regular British people. In order to do that, you need to put the message in the terms that the audience will understand. And so while he does have these incredible examples of past prime ministers and the great historians that have come before him, he knows that in order to capture the British imagination at this moment, he needs to speak in simple, plain terms that regular people will understand and that they will respond to. A key element of Churchill's wartime rhetoric was his devotion to military detail and to managing expectations. Victory would not come quickly and false hopes were to be avoided at all costs. He was also an old war correspondent, and Churchill thrived on presenting his people with the facts of the matter. We may now ask ourselves, in what way has our position worsened since the beginning of the war? It has been worsened by the fact that the Germans have conquered a large part of the coastline of Western Europe, and many small countries have been overrun by them. This aggravates the possibilities of air attack and adds to our naval preoccupations. It in no way diminishes, but on the contrary, definitely increases the power of our long-distance blockade. We do not know whether military resistance will come to an end in France or not, but should it do so, then of course the Germans will be able to concentrate their forces upon us and he believed in preparing people for the worst. The great question is, 
Can we break Hitler and their weapons? Now, of course, it is a very great pity that we have not got an air force at least equal to that of the most powerful enemy within reach of our shores. But we have a very powerful air force which has proved itself far superior in quality, both in men and in many types of machines, to anything we have met so far in the numerous and fierce air battles which have been fought with the Germans. There remains, of course, the danger of the bombing attacks, which will certainly be made very soon upon us by the numerous bomber forces of the enemy. It is quite true that their bomber force is superior in numbers to ours. But we have a very large bomber force also, which we shall use to strike at military targets in Germany without intermission. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I think there are a few people in history who understood the English language better than Winston Churchill, and that started from a very young age. This is the historian Candace Millard, author of Hero of the Empire, The Boer War, A Daring Escape, and The Making of Winston Churchill. He always said he was terrible in school. He wasn't a good student, and that's up for debate. But what is true is that he wasn't maybe good at, you know, Greek or Latin, and so they put him in an English class. And he always says that really shaped him. I mean, that shaped him and may have helped to save the Western world 40 years later. He was always an incredibly charismatic and powerful speaker, and he knew that he had the power to harness it he brought his own confidence, but more than that, it's this ability to inspire confidence in others. I do not at all underrate the severity of the ordeal which lies before us, but I believe our countrymen will show themselves capable of standing up to it and of carrying on in spite of it, at least as well as any other people in the world. He had the type of confidence that was contagious. So, you know, when I studied him, he was just 24, 25 years old. He's in this war in South Africa. At that time, he wasn't in the military himself. He's just a journalist. But at every point, everyone turned to him, people who were much older, people who had official positions in the military. He would immediately and instinctively take over. So he's on this armored train. It's being attacked. 
And he starts shouting orders. Again, 24 years old, not in the military. And everyone just immediately lines up and takes orders from him. What I saw in him at that young age were all these characteristics that come into play and were so essential to the Western world 40 years later. You know, his resilience, his courage, his determination, his resourcefulness. But again, this ability to make people think not only can he do it, but I can too. He believes in me. And because of that, I have this strength of character and this determination that I didn't even know I had. There was something else, too, evident in the speech of June 18th, the fundamentally magnanimous nature of Churchill himself. A politician, he believed this morning's foe could be this afternoon's ally. Now was not the time to adjudicate the battles of the 1930s, the tensions between the appeasers and the hawks. History could sort all of that out, Now, there was a war to win. Second-guessing the previous month and the previous years was not a useful exercise at this hour. As Churchill said, Of this I am quite sure, that if we open a quarrel between the past and the present, we shall find that we have lost the future. Therefore, I cannot accept the drawing of any distinctions between members of the present government. It was formed at a moment of crisis in order to unite all the parties and all sections of opinion. It has received the almost unanimous support of both houses of parliament. Its members are going to stand together and, subject to the authority of the House of Commons, we are going to govern the country and fight the war. It is absolutely necessary at a time like this that every minister who tries each day to do his duty shall be respected and their subordinates must know that their chiefs are not threatened men, men who are here today and gone tomorrow, but that their directions must be punctually and faithfully obeyed. Hitler would not be defeated soon, but he would be defeated. If Hitler can bring under his despotic control the industries of the countries he's conquered, This will add greatly to his already vast armament output. On the other hand, he will not be able to develop them immediately. And we are now assured of immense, continuous, increasing support in supplies and munitions of all kinds from the United States. And especially of aeroplanes and pilots from the Dominions and across the ocean who will come from regions outside the reach of the enemy bombers. And finally, the deathless words rang out. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed, and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth 
last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. The speech was delivered twice once in the House of Commons, and again for the public on the radio. Churchill's performance in the House was apparently better than his later public one. An intimate wrote, Now, as delivered in the House of Commons, that speech was magnificent, but it sounded ghastly on the wireless. All the great vigor he put into it seemed to evaporate. Jock Koval, his private secretary, thought the Prime Minister sounded tired on the radio, Another aide reflected that at points during the radio version, Churchill spoke with a cigar in his mouth. Yet the speech's sentiments transcended the iffy public delivery. Here, as on other occasions in 1940, Churchill, as the CBS broadcaster Edward R. Murrow once remarked, mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. Even Eleanor Roosevelt, who was skeptical of Churchill's fondness for the British Empire, believed these addresses suggested that Churchill was rising to a historic occasion. Churchill himself knew so much was to be done. He recalled, All these oft-quoted words were made good in the hour of victory, but now they were only words. Foreigners who did not understand the temper of the British race all over the globe when its blood is up might suppose they were only a bold front set up as a good prelude for peace negotiations. Hitler's need to finish the war in the West was obvious. He was in a position to offer the most tempting terms. Not every government called into being by democracy or by despotism, and not every nation, while quite alone, and as it seemed abandoned, would have courted the horrors of invasion and disdained a fair chance of peace for which many plausible excuses could be presented. Rhetoric was no guarantee. Doubts could only be swept away by deeds. The deeds were to come. Inspiring those deeds was Churchill's aim on June 18th, and indeed throughout his years of service. When he used the construction, men will still say, he was summoning his listeners to live not only for the moment, but for the ages to so conduct themselves that their story would be told from generation to generation. Such an appeal might seem sentimental, but it was grounded in Churchill's own sense of history. 
his conviction that human beings act on incentive, and one such incentive was to be seen as heroic in an hour when heroism was the most difficult of courses to follow. The theme of this volume of his war memoirs, entitled Finest Hour, was rooted in this understanding of living history. Churchill wrote, How the British people held the fort alone until those who had been half-blind were half-ready. He was talking about the United States, about a nation that had chosen to avert its eyes from the unfolding evil in Europe until the flames of war at last reached American shores and American interests. 1940 was not America's finest hour, but Great Britain's. And that, as Churchill predicted, is what men still say. On the next episode of It Was Said, Season 2, John F. Kennedy rallies the nation behind a daring and uncertain mission to land a man on the moon before the end of the decade. Thank you for listening to It Was Said Season 2, a creation and production of C-13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio in association with the History Channel. Executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13. Written and narrated by me, John Meacham. Production led by Margot Gray. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil. Production coordination, research, support, and consultation by Lloyd Lockridge, Bill Schultz, Sean Cherry, and Bob Tabador. Marketing, PR, sales, operations, and business affairs, led by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santroen, Bill Schultz, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Creative consultation by Eli Lehrer and Jesse Katz of the History Channel. Our theme song is I Can Almost See You by Hammock. Our closing credits theme song is Light by Michael Kiwanuka. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. We're miles apart, but safe in dreams. You're running far. Be young and dark, we'll always be one of their own. Fall on your knees to find a love. Your life to me, my only son. You'll always shine for me.
It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.